This week we're talking gay frogs. Are we? Hold on. That's that's not that's that's not in my notes. But, well, I mean, it's a bit of a tortuous journey to get there, but as with most things in life, it all ends up at gay frogs. I mean, with Alex Jones it does, but we're not talking about him. Or are we talking about Alex Jones this week? It would be hard to talk about a book without mentioning its author. So yes, of course we will. No, I'm 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 lost again. I knew we were going to be discussing a book, but. What book? Yeah, no, yeah. Soycatcher by Alex Jones, his searing expose on the ensoyification of the modern world that's leeching our testosterone and producing a species of foppish weaklings gayer than the gayest of frogs, which are also gay. Ah, I think I see what's happened here. So we're supposed to be talking about Spycatcher by Peter Wright. I think you've become the victim of an amusing typographic error. Hmm. Yeah, you're probably right. Well, that's three weeks of research out the window. So no gay frogs. I'm sure we can work one or two into the narrative, but no, it'll mostly be spies. <sighs> Fine. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, featuring Josh Edison and M. Dentith. Hello, and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. In Auckland, New Zealand, it is both me, Josh Edison, and Dr. M. Rx Dentith, staring one another in the eye. Who will blink first? That'll be me. Yeah, most certainly it sure I'll do that all the time. Uh, so, it's been a few weeks. Em has been on a quite frankly well-deserved holiday in and about the North Island of New Zealand. I mean, mostly at the bottom of the North Island. Mm, and yeah. a little bit at the top. Mm, mm. But nowhere in the middle. No, no. You wouldn't. Yeah, it's excluded would? middle. The excluded... Mm. That's, yeah, that's a terrible philosophy joke. Yeah, well, it's a philosophy joke, so it probably goes That's without true. saying. That um, is true. Uh, so, but anyway, we're back. We have an episode. It'll be all good. Uh, we did say, though, that I need to start asking you what you've been up to so that you can, you can overcome your aversion to self-promotion and actually get your ideas out there. So, apart from being on a, on a well-deserved bit of R&R, what have you been up to since our last episode? So aside from course prep, because basically I'm teaching two courses this semester, and I'm trying to redesign them so that LLMs can't be used to cheat in the assessment, I've been doing a whole bunch of paper reviews, and I finally got round to starting to do the touch-up or revision work on the I know it when I see it motivating examples in social psychology paper which is now in a kind of interesting state. So at the end of last year, I had three reviews, two of which were approved with reservations. So both Steve Clark and Brian Alkeely wanted to see some changes. They weren't mandatory, but I was encouraged to make some changes. And one not approved by Robbie Sutton, who really didn't like the paper at all. As of this week, the paper is now has four reviews, one of which is approved, two of which are approved with re reservations, and one is not approved. So Joe Yusinski has reviewed the paper, and because it now has an approved and a approved with reservations, it is now approved, and I don't technically have to make any changes now. It can be published as is. So I've gone from, how am I going to best 
mollify the concerns of Steve Clark and Brian Alkeely to, well, they can just take what I'm going to give them. Mm. Which sounds rather hard on my part. I've, the, both Steve and Brian made some really interesting points that I do want to address. It's just interesting now to go, I don't have to address if I don't want to. And has actually opened up the interesting philosophical problem of what if I make the paper worse? Because it's, a, it's approved now, it's going to be published no matter what changes I make. I could make the paper worse and they would still publish it. Mm. See, I assumed this was all leading up to the fact that you're going to have to have Roger Sarsen assassinated and thereby give yourself a clean record and a, and a and free reign to do whatever you want. But um, That's going to be awkward. It shows what little I know about I'll the workings be, of the I'll philosophy world. So Robbie Sutton is the partner of Robbie, Karen I said Roger, didn't I? Douglas, and I'll be seeing them in June. And it would be very awkward, especially if it was a failed assassination attempt, to then have to stare Robbie Sutton in the face and go... I almost had you killed, and yet my assassins failed at the last moment. Mm. Oh, well, best for all concerned then, I guess. Uh, so, that's that out of the way. We have we have an episode. We have one of those, hey, we should do an episode about this episodes, um, and we haven't actually waited like three years this time. We're going to talk about a thing we said we should talk about last episode, this episode. Indeed, we're going to talk about pie catcher. Pie catcher, soy catcher. Sly thatcher. Something like that. Uh, we'll become clear after the chime. Yes, no, I have it on a, on, a, on a note in front of me. The book is Spycatcher. Spycatcher, the candid autobiography of a senior intelligence officer. I like that it's a candid autobiography. Mm, how does that work? I mean, in theory, it's warts and all, so I, yeah. a candid autobiography. Candid means yeah. they don't know they're being filmed, but you kind but of But a candid autobiography, I think, is you're not meant to keep anything back. You admit to both your heroic acts and also your flaws because of course one of the problems of autobiographies is that they are often hagiographies written by the person who really wants to be hagiographic mm. about their own lives a candid autobiography should be something that goes yep i did some bad things i killed a person well we're not far off that i think so this book now i remember it was published in 1987 I would have. I was eleven years old in nineteen eighty-seven, but I do remember. I remember Spycatcher being a thing. I remember. I didn't know anything about it. Didn't understand what was in it. But I remember this being a book that was kind of a, kind of a big deal. Yeah, I think my parents, more. at least, if they didn't own a copy, borrowed a copy. I know the Devonport Public Library had, as had it as a book on tape. So they really did push Spycatcher so that everybody could enjoy it. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a children's illustrated version out there somewhere. If there isn't, there should be. Uh, so it was written by a man called Peter Wright, who was a former assistant director of MI5, with Paul Greengrass as a co-writer. That's Paul Greengrass, who these days is known best for being the director of the Jason Bourne movies, but back then he was a writer and a journalist and someone who was qualified to be co-writing a book about, um, about, about intelligence and candid autobiographies thereof. Um, so he, he wrote it in his retirement. Um, he, he moved to Australia after he retired, wrote his book there... He apparently, so, so something that I just found mentioned in passing when I was looking about this, um, while a big deal, as we will see, was made about the book Spycatcher, he'd actually, there, there had been a book published six years earlier in 1981 called Their Trade is Treachery, 
by a man called Harry Chapman Pincher, uh, which made many of the same allegations that Spycatcher makes, and indeed it turns out Peter Wright was the main source for that book, although he was anonymous at the time. Uh, but apparently apparently he got stiffed on his pension a little bit. There was some deal about the fact that he'd, he worked for MI5, he'd also worked for GCHQ, is that the right one? The other yeah, government. Yeah. Worked for GCHQ and, and there was something about they decided that his, his other work he'd done didn't count towards his work at MI, his, sort of his, his whole career. And so they said, no, you don't get a full pension because you haven't worked for us for long enough, even though he had worked uh, in a similar thing in a similar capacity. Ah, but he so. worked for different branches. Mm, that was the thing. Mm. So so he, he, reckons, he reckons that's why he was motivated to write this book for money, basically. He didn't get the pension he felt he was owed, so he thought, well, he'll make some money by publishing a book, a tell-all a tell-all book about life at MI5. Uh, and apparently it worked for him. Apparently he died a millionaire. He died in uh, 1995, age 78. So good for him, I guess. Yeah, although... Dying a millionaire is going to turn out to be very interesting because the royalties he got excluded one particular part of the English-speaking world, the part of the English-speaking world where English originated. It, it, it did, yes. We'll, we'll get into that uh, before too long. So yes, we mentioned it last episode, we had a news, a news article last episode where some documents had come out regarding uh, one of the cases. Um, the Harold Wilson spying affair. The Harold Wilson affair, which is mentioned prominently in the book. Uh, and then I mentioned it back in episode 359, we, know we, did a, we did a What the Conspiracy episode and I was talking about people who had be, it had been claimed were Russian agents. So Harold Wilson is someone who, who people had said might have been a Russian agent, as well as, as I recall, it was Ernest Hemingway, who, who I think had said to Russia, do you want me to be a spy for you, but wasn't a very good one. And uh, Joseph Stalin, who there was what looks to have been a bit of disinformation suggesting that he was actually working for the Russian secret police before he, he went native. So what was it called? The Ocarina? The Ocarina. Ocarina. Mm. As opposed to the Macarena. Yeah, quite, quite a different <laughs> thing. Stalin doing the Macarena. Mm. I don't approve of, of AIs, but if someone does want to make an AI animation of Stalin doing the Macarena, I'm, I'm not going to stop you. In fact, I, I can't. Mm. And in fact, I, I almost encourage you. But... I, don't, I, I won't go that far. Okay. It was, it, was, it was a very notable book, caused quite a fuss, and, and caused quite a fuss for two different reasons. There was the what it actually contained, and then there were the various efforts of the British government to stop it from being published. Yes, because the Prime Minister at the time was one Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, and she was not keen on the fact this book had been published in Australia. So they, they weren't able to block publication in territories outside of the United Kingdom, but they really didn't want the book printed back in old Blighty. It was it was banned in England in 1985, but apparently only in England. So it was available elsewhere in the UK. Um, and so there Oh, were... so Scotland mm. and Northern Ireland you'd be able to go and pick up a Yeah, copy. apparently this was sort of, you know, noted at the time it's ridiculous that that we I, I can't mention it here in England and yet I could just drive up to Scotland and get a copy of yeah, it. Yeah, I mean and I mean this is a point in time where you don't really have the devolved assemblies operating in Edinburgh and Stormont. So that is a really weird situation mm. to go, well, legally we can block it in in the counties of, in, of 
England, but go go to Wales or go to Cornwall mm. or go to Northern Ireland or Scotland and pick up a copy to your heart's content. Yes, I don't actually know how that came about, that particular arrangement, but it did. Um, but yeah, again, more, more files that were released late last year showed documents from there's a like a printed or a typed up report talking about this and you can see thatcher's handwritten comments all on the margin talking about how this was uh saying the consequences of publication would be enormous that it was very important that they not get this stuff published multiple articles i assume quoting the same source used the, the quote that she was apparently shattered she was shattered by the revelations of spy catcher although i'm not clear if she was shattered to find out the revelations that it contained, or if she already knew about them and was shattered by the fact that they had been made public. I mean, I'm assuming the latter, in part because one of the things we discovered from the Seville affair is that, because as we know, Jimmy Seville was given awards by the British government for his great service towards children Mm. and corpses. And we now know from cabinet notes that... People had kind of brought up there's some unsavoury rumours going on about this Jimmy Savile person. And government at that time were going, well, the, the public doesn't know this, so they don't need to be concerned about these rumours going around. So I'm assuming in this case, Thatcher wasn't shocked by what she found in the book. She was shocked by the, by the idea the British people would find out what she already knew. So yes, they they launched all sorts of efforts to try and stop it from getting out. They also launched a court case uh, in Australia to try and stop it from getting published in Australia, and and, and they lost. Um, there's this trial in the North uh, New South Wales Supreme Court, uh, a trial which incidentally it's known it's it's the trial that popularised the phrase being economical with the truth. That's the phrase that had existed before then, but that's what sort of brought it into the popular consciousness when um, the Thatcher's cabinet secretary, Sir Robert Armstrong, was being questioned by the Australian lawyer, future Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. And Turnbull was basically, you know, basically saying to this guy, okay, so you lied about this, didn't you? And this guy was just twitting himself into all sorts of rhetorical knots to say, well, isn't that actually a lie? It wasn't really, I didn't, didn't lie as such. And sort of, you know, what would you count as a lie? What, what's a lie and what isn't and so on and so forth. And he basically said, it was, it was just it was more, more sort of being economical with the truth. And that phrase um, stuck. Uh, apparently, sort of during the trial, Turnbull suggested to the, to the British government that as a as a sort of you know as a compromise measure, he said, "Why don't you set up some sort of uh, system like the U.S. has, where uh, agents like CIA agents who have retired and want to publish a book about their stuff can go and seek permission and be told, okay, yes, we will. You, you're allowed to talk about this, but presumably with some conditions on what they're yeah." To say so the CIA like system, and I believe it also applies to books written by other agencies like the NSA and the FBI, is that you typically produce a manuscript, and then it goes to, say, Langley, if it's the CIA, and then they go through with their black pen and go, yep, we can talk about this, but not that, not that, not that, not that, not that. And then you can go through and you can then edit your volume to get around the can't name this particular person, can't use these particular dates, or go, well, actually, most of the document came back with black marker on it, so I guess I'm not writing this book. Mm. But there is a system for going, look, some of this information has been declassified, so you can talk about that. Some of this information remains classified, but you can talk about it in kind of loose terms. And some of the stuff the public never is allowed to know about under the current 
FOIA system. So you can write about this in 12 years time, but not just now. Yeah, so, and he sort of said, you know, you could do this, you'll you'll look good, your sort of freedom of speech credentials will look good. Um, apparently he said, you know, that, that he would, if, if they went for this, Turnbull would talk about what a great guy Sir Robert Armstrong was and how good he'd been, but I think Thatcher took it back to the government, and there, there's a whole thing where someone used the phrase uh, beware Greeks, especially when they're bearing gifts, and, and suggesting that th there could be issues with this that are... Uh, that could be worse than the than the good press for them, or, or for whatever reason they decided. I, mean, I think, no. from memory, the problem was the British government was going, but look, we need to be able to claw back information if need be. So we have a proactive release system, and then we go on the eve of publication. Actually, no, no, don't talk about this thing. We've actually already given permission, so it's going to go out there. And they go, no, it's just better that we just never give him p p permission for these things. And so, yes, they were very concerned that they wouldn't be able to control narratives about particular events. But at any rate, the, the, the UK government did not go for this particular compromise. They carried on with the trial and they lost. So it was published in Australia and the US in 1987. It was finally cleared for sale in England in 1988. Eight, and there was a review uh, from the was it the Law Lords. Yes, sounds the Law Lords. like a sounds like a, a bunch of Doctor Who villains, but not quite. No, no. Actually, I'm trying to think of the other the oh, what was the comic strip that was actually a series of photos and had a a Doom related character, not Doom Watch, Doom Lord. Was it Doom Lord? I don't know. No, it used to be in the Eagle, I believe. Great, great series of comic books. He was sent to the earth to judge humanity, and the first Doom Lord dooms humanity to death. But he gets defeated, and the second Doom Lord is sent, and he discovers there's a reason to keep the human race alive. It ends up being a very convoluted kind of continuity. Anyway, the Law Lords sound like they are the people who rule the Doom Lord's planet. Mm, something like that. Yeah. Uh, but actually, there were people who reviewed this book and decided that it could be published now, it was sort of suggested that they'd have said, oh, it's, it's okay because he hasn't revealed any secrets, but that's not quite... Yeah, so their reasoning was this. The book had been published overseas, so by the time the book was cleared to be published in the United Kingdom, there were copies in Australasia, there were copies in North America, there were copies in the EU, there were copies in part of the United Kingdom that didn't happen to be England, and the law lords were going, well look, nothing in the book is secret anymore because it's been revealed. It's public information now. So technically, there are no secrets in the book which are going to be revealed by publication in England. And so some people took that as the law lords going, oh, you know, everything that Wright wrote about are things that were already declassified. And their argument was, well, actually, they've kind of been de facto declassified by being written about. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, now, more woes for the government. At the time, the Observer and the Guardian newspapers both published some of the allegations from Spycatcher, and the government won an injunction against them, restraining them from publishing any more material about what was what what was in Spycatcher. Um, the papers eventually took the government to the European Court of Human Rights, claimed their freedom of speech had been violated, and it, it took a while, it took until 1991, uh, but the judges eventually ruled. 
that the government had violated Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is freedom of expression, uh, and they ruled that the government should pay £100,000 to the two newspapers. Now, of course, because of Brexit now, the British government would never do such a thing. No. But ironically, the European Convention on Human Rights was written by the British government. Mm. So they were kind of hoist by their own petard. They were a little bit. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the only, the only win the government had, if you could even call it that, was simply, as you said before, that Wright couldn't receive any royalties for sales of his book in the UK. So they they stiffed him on his pension, and they stiffed, stiffed him, him on, on the royalties. royalties. Yep, but as we say, he died a millionaire, so he made plenty of money of it uh, out of it overseas. So it was all it was all a bit of a bit of a cock up, a bit of a almost a bit of a Streisand factor long before the Streisand effect had um, been coined. And and so there was obviously a lot of conspiratorial activity around talking about this and trying to get it squashed to begin with. We've talked a lot about. About the book, about, about the efforts to stop the book from getting out and failing and so on. But um, we should probably talk about what was actually in the book. Yes, and here's a kind of interesting aspect of why the British government were wrong not to have a disclosure mechanism. Because as we're going to say, some of the claims in Spycatcher either aren't true or could never be verified. And if the British government had engaged in a system where they'd asked Wright to please submit the manuscript to us, we will verify and tell you what you can and can't say, some of the more salacious claims that turn out to be not verifiable at all may never have actually ever made print. But because the British government went, no, 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 uh, Wright got to publish and basically say whatever he liked. And because of the British government's reaction to Spycatcher, people thought that every claim in Spycatcher was going to be true, because otherwise, why would the British government spend so much effort to keep it from the people? Yes, and I mean, it, it almost seems a little bit quaint in this day and age, perhaps, reading about the shocking allegations in here. I don't know that if you were to publish a book like this today and say this is the sort of thing an intelligence agency people got up to, people would would probably go, eh, it sounds like the sort of thing they'd do. But back in in the early 1980s, basically nothing was known about, about what these agencies got up to. So when he talked about how MI5, quote, bugged and burgled its way across London, eyebrows were raised. They were, monocles were popped. They sure did. So yeah, they talked about, one of the, one of the big claims was that... Um, MI5, or former MI5 Director General Sir Roger Hollis, was a Russian mole. This is something that Peter Wright believed to be true. He, he apparently, during his time at MI5, had invested, was convinced there was Russian moles there and, and seemed to believe that, that Hollis was one. Now, a review in 1974 apparently found no evidence of this. But um, Wright continued to believe it. And admittedly, one of the things which is interesting about the history of MI5 and MI6 was that because there were Russian agents operating in the British Secret Service establishment, moles were being hidden by other moles, because those moles were in charge of the investigation into those mm. moles. Because, oh, uh, we found no evidence that X is working for the Russians. No evidence whatsoever, comrade. Did I say comrade? I meant... I meant uh, old chum, mm. yes, scones, scones and tea, scones mm. and tea, anyone? 
Yeah, so he also he talked about um, the fact that MI6 had a plot to assassinate President Nasser during the Suez Crisis. Uh, lots of talk of bugging and eavesdropping and what have you, bugging high-level Commonwealth conferences, bugging embassies all over the place. A again, stuff that these days, if you say, oh, the British government was 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 bugging and spying on on everyone they could get their hands on in this sort of post-Snowden world, people would say, yeah, I, I'm sure they were. That's what these guys do, isn't it? But um, again, this was something that pe people, I, I guess, just assumed, oh, every, they were all, all honourable men. They wouldn't be up to any rum doings, would they? No, no, even though the entire point of the intelligence agency is to is basically a by any means necessary mantra. Mm. Uh, and so but he, in general, he talks about how they made sure to keep everything secret, keep themselves unaccountable. He talks about how the, the agencies had an 11th commandment, which was thou shalt not get caught. So, you know, no, no matter what you're doing, do, do, do whatever you want as long as you can get away with it. And so uh, maybe it was more this... You know, this, this this sort of attitude, I guess, was perhaps the more shocking thing. If you thought that these were all all fellows who are uh, good, good, good British men doing good British things, and then they're up to dodgy dealings. Good British things, like say taking over entire countries and stealing their natural resources. Yes. Good, nothing British more British things. than that. But in the dodgy, dodgy, underhanded dealings. That's not cricket. So there's an interesting book by Christopher Andrew uh, called The Secret World. Christopher Andrew is yet another former senior MI5 member. He actually may have been director at one point. I can't quite remember his, his dossier. And The Secret World is a history of intelligence agencies that we know of through history. So he starts with Egypt, Greece, and Rome, and then talks about how China did things, how the Italians did things up to the modern day. And he says there's a recurrent problem in almost every narrative about secret services, is that because of their devotion to being secretive, they never write anything down, they never know if the, the right hand never knows what the left hand is doing, etc., etc. So they are always reinventing the wheel. And that secrecy is so built into it that you might think that you're doing something really, really noble, not being realised that you've been manipulated into an ignoble end. And then there's the Harold Wilson stuff. So this was one of the one of the key allegations that were made in Spycatcher, the MI5 plot against British Prime Minister Harold Wilson. Which we brought up last week, but was talked about in more depth back in episode 359. Yes, yeah, so as a bit of a recap, Wilson was a Labour Prime Minister, and so of course was a great big lefty, and not as popular with the more conservative intelligence agencies as other prime ministers might be. He'd been president of the Board of Trade in the late 40s, he'd been on trade missions to Russia, he was buddies with Soviet politicians, including uh, Mr Molotov, the man whom cocktails are named after, uh, because he was... what's the Molotov cocktail thing? He was dropping bombs on... Poland, which they called Molotov bread baskets, and so when the Polish started chucking petrol bombs back, they sort of called them Molotov cocktails, cocktails like we're yeah. giving Molotov a taste of his own medicine. Anyway, something like that. Uh, but anyway, in 1963, 
Um, a KGB defector called Anatoly Golitsyn had claimed that Wilson was a KGB informer. And an agent of influence. An agent of great influence. Uh, and then uh, Wilson, he became leader of the Labour Party after the sudden death of Hugh Gaskell, who is his predecessor. And so Golitsyn claimed that Gaskell's death was an assassination designed to put the KGB's asset into power. Officially, his death was a sudden flare-up of lupus. What would House say? It's never lupus. Mm. It's always an assassination mm. by a KGB agent. When it comes to the, the fact that what was this actually true, doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence for it, is there? No. No, one of the worries that people had at the time was that MI5, as you pointed out, was pretty much against anyone with a slightly left agenda. And people were going, it's, it's quite convenient that we've got this defector who has suddenly come out and is making these outrageous claims about the sitting Prime Minister, a Prime Minister that MI5 didn't want to be in power. And then this person starts making claims that, you know, Gatskill just didn't die. He was assassinated. And people were going, this, this seems like maybe this is disinformation being put out by people who want to cast aspersions on a left-leaning prime minister by a right-leaning intelligence agency. Yeah, so I believe an officially my five investigation concluded that no, no, uh, Harold Wilson was not a KGB agent, but there was still this faction within MI5 um, who thought that he was. And... and that's the faction that people thought continued to spy on the Prime Minister, despite MI5 claiming we are definitely not doing that. Mm. So apparently people uh, plotted, this, this faction plotted with the CIA to try and bring him down. There, was, there had been apparently a, a plot by business leaders to bring him down in the late 60s. There's talk of a military coup in 1974. And then uh, supposedly in the lead up to the 1974 general election in the UK, MI5 was going to be leaking damaging information about Wilson and others to sympathetic journalists to, uh, to sort of encourage the idea that Wilson was a security risk and keep him out of power. So um, Peter Wright, in, in Spycatcher, Peter Wright says that 30 MI5 agents were collaborating to, to get rid of Wilson, although he later retracted that claim, saying there was only one man uh, I don't know if people then asked, was that one man you, Peter? Yeah, yeah. Are you are you the person who thought mm. that Harold? Because I, I assuming he had to kind of retract the claim because people would say, uh, so Peter, who are the other twenty nine mm. men? Can you name some names? I mean, you seem to be very keen on revealing things. So who are the other twenty nine men, Peter? Yes, I mean the the actual veracity of a lot of the stuff is up for question. Actually, I saw. Um, in 1993, there was a review published by the Center for the Study of Intelligence, which is a CIA think tank, which said that the book included factual data, but was also filled with errors, exaggerations, bogus ideas, and self-inflation, which I thought was a fairly specific kind of movie you can and get. Once but, um, again, if the British government had simply had a kind of panel for assessing these claims, some of those exaggerations or self-inflations may never have made it to print. Mm. Peter Wright may not have self-inflated himself have. in public. No, no. Now, of course, this, this is all... The, th the book came out in the 80s. The stuff it's talking about is from the 70s and earlier, going back to the 50s, I think. So the British... I believe the, the, the British policy is that after 30 years, things become declassified. Yes, although I think stuff from World War II 
doesn't get declassified for about 70 years. So there are some war secrets which get classified for a really long time. Yeah. So there are things that we will not know about. Ha- there are things that happen at Bletchley Park we will never officially know about until at least, I think, 2028. Mm. So, but yeah, at any rate, 30 years is the usual amount. Um, uh, apparently, though, the, the government has been uh, less than eager to share some of this stuff. I saw an article from 2021 talking about uh, Tim Tate, who's a documentarian. He was trying to get access to files relating to Spycatcher, which should have been publicly available by then, and said that the, the, the officials he was dealing with just came up with all sorts of exclu- excuses about oh, why they couldn't couldn't possibly make these available. Um, so to quote Mr. Tate, it's like playing a game of whack-a-mole. One excuse pops up and you take the time and go through the process and say, no, that's not lawful, and then they change tack. It's public money that is paying for this obfuscation and delay, but it never faces any sanctions for failing to meet deadlines imposed by the law. So he was a little... Um, he was a little put out about it, but stuff has been coming out. Like I say, last end of last year, there was some of the um, stuff about Thatcher's reactions to things, and then just just last episode, we talked about how stuff had been declassified around, essentially the fact that MI5 thought that Wilson was a spy, probably incorrectly, and Wilson thought that MI5 was spying on him, probably, probably correctly. quite correctly. Mm. Yeah, on the OIA FOIA stuff, it's actually taken to be a big issue both in the UK and also in Aotearoa, New Zealand. In that we have official information access systems, but we don't really have a very good enforcement mechanism for when agencies fail to release information proactively or give lots of excuses as to why they're not releasing information they ought to. So in many cases, the ombudsman, both in the UK and here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, will give a department or a minister a slap on the wrist and say, do better next time. But there's no kind of enforcement to force ministers or their departments to be better next time. And so it's one thing to have official information access systems. It's another thing to actually enforce them to ensure that governments have to release information even if it is stuff which is embarrassing to them. And the thing about institutions like the government is that even if it's stuff from the 1970s, it still embarrasses the government of the day, even if it was the opposition that was in power at the time, because it's the government of the day that has to explain why the government of yesterday did the thing that they did, Mm. in such a way that they don't tarnish the reputation of former ministers. And so that is the story of Spycatcher, apart from the actual story of Spycatcher, which to know you'd have to read Spycatcher. Yeah, some uh, a bunch of a bunch of interesting uh, claims, and I guess I, I, yeah, I guess like we said, I, the main thing seemed to be just simply the revelation that these guys got up to dodgy stuff, that that they did things that they really shouldn't have been allowed to do, but because they knew they could get away with it, they kept on doing it. Um, and so even though some of the allegations turn out to actually probably not be true, the or wider sort of, inflated. Mm, uh, the, the, the wider picture it paints of the MI uh, of, of, of the intelligence agencies uh, was not the flattering one. No, and it's part of a, a movement that's going on in the UK in particular in the middle of the 20th century. So things like the Profomo uh, scandal slash affair, spycatcher, and the realisation that British people had kind of naively thought the state was looking after them and had their best interests at heart, 
And then things like the Profomo scandal and Spy Capture were actually, no, sometimes they're just out for their their own good, and sometimes they're just acting on hunches. Mm. And this doesn't seem like a very good system. And so it reminds me of what actually led to the Echon regime in France collapsing and the French Revolution being started up, was a series of books detailing how the financial system and bribery in the French royal court worked, which made the bourgeoisie going, well, we were always told that the aristocracy was looking after us. And actually, the aristocracy is only looking after itself. And in France, that led to a glorious revolution. And in the UK, it's led to Brexit. Mm. Different strokes for different folks. Yes, I'm just at the moment playing through the game Steel Rising, which was a free PlayStation Plus game this month, which is a Souls-like game set in the French Revolution, only there are clockwork robots. No. Oh. Good. So you play as a, um, yeah, it didn't get well reviewed, but I'm quite enjoying it. It's not as it's not quite as hardcore as your usual Souls-like game. It was a bit tricky to begin with, but after a few upgrades, I'm finding it relatively easy, which is a nice change, quite frankly. Have I, you played Lies of P? I've played the demo of it. I haven't bought the full game. That seems to be getting spectacularly good reviews to the point where I'm going surely. Surely a Souls-like based upon Pinocchio can't work, and apparently people say no, it really works. And apparently the sequel is going to be all about Alice. Ah, I have, I've heard what happens in the end, and it's a different fairy story that's referenced there, but who oh, knows? What was it? Maybe, uh, maybe I'm getting my references wrong. There's a, apparently spoilers, 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 if you have not played the game Lies of P and don't want to know about the post-credits cutscene, stop listening for the next few seconds. Oh, uh, apparently no, sorry, it's Dorothy. Yeah, 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 sorry, Dorothy yeah, yeah, no, you're quite right. It is, it is the, the, the Wizard of Oz. Anyway. Uh, enough about computer games that I'm playing. Um, I think it's time to end this episode. If, if for no other reason that one of us can get up and turn on the lights, because we started recording this uh, as the sun was we had not had not quite started to set, and during the set during the, the the recording of this episode, it has gone down, and so we're before we were we could see each other quite clearly. Now we're lit only by the lights of our tablets held underneath our faces, so we look like we're both telling each other ghost stories. And maybe we are. Maybe we, maybe we will in our bonus episode, which we're going to record as soon as we well, start I mean, recording this one. We are going to talk one. about the thing. We are. We're going to talk about an early adventure of Peter Wright's uh, before he in fact, before he even joined MI5. Yeah, back when he was working in, in an Antarctic base and had some problem with some dogs. Mm, we have the story of Peter Wright versus the thing. Uh, and a bit of new stuff. We'll talk about Foo Fighters and multiple senses of the word. Yep. Uh, and, and some other stuff. So, yeah, um, including our current thoughts on the most recent season of The White Vault. Yes, we're we going keep, back we to griping about, about narrative form podcasts. We are. So if you want to get in on, on any of that, uh, listen to our bonus podcast. And if you want to be a, a patron of ours and therefore eligible to hear the bonus podcast, you have to now go to Patreon.com because we're not hosted on Podbean anymore, so you can't use their patronage system. Go to Patreon, look for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. Sign yourself up. Or don't. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if if you want to slap yourself in the face with a fish, you can do that as well. Yep. But it'll be less productive mm. than becoming a patron. I think so too. So, I believe we're done with our tale of, of intrigue and drama and boring legal proceedings. 
So until next time, oh now I suppose another update. So you are back to China on next Sunday. week on Sunday. On Sunday. Sunday this week we're recording on Monday night. Um, so right, so less than a week, and you're off and away. Yep. And then it'll be back to um, back to long distance records. Indeed. So in a fortnight's time, we'll be doing our next episode. And Josh, I think it's time. I think it's time for us to read a book in three parts. I I I will try to read a book. I'll read the first part of the book. How about that? And then you'll read the second part of the book, mm. and then the third. Part Those of are the things book. that will happen at some point eventually. Yes. Yeah, so we're going assume. to be looking at Michael Shermer's book on conspiracy theories, which I'm really quite interested to look into because of A, my personal history with Michael Shermer, and B, he's quite a weird heterodox thinker. So I'm quite curious to see where he lands on conspiracy theories, given there are so many conspiracy theories about him and his ilk. Right. Oh well, something to look forward to. Uh, but until then... I think it's just uh, down to me to say goodbye. And for me to say, by good. The podcast's Guide to the Conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R.X. Dentith. Our show's consp- sorry, producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember, it's just a step to the left.